Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of When Movies Were Good. We're here recording from the resort studios, aka my flat, here in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Rachel, of course, and I'm recording with my special guest star, the one and only Matt. Hello, Rachel. Good to see you again. <laughs> Good to see you. Matt and I have been uh, through the ups and downs of illness and f traveling and a few other things, so we, we haven't had a chance to record for a little while, but well, we're back been, on track. Well, you've been ill. I've been on a holiday. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Matt was visiting uh, the great state of South Australia in Adelaide. How was your trip? Excellent. Uh, they have a lovely uh, selection of fresh meat and sausages there. They do yeah, you went to the German part, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Hamburg, like, like a little Germany. Uh, yeah, so like uh, lots of great um, uh, sausage and uh, salami distributors. Is there. that actually in the city of Adelaide or? Uh, no, it's like uh, f sort of half an hour drive from there. Okay, yeah, I have had a friend that went there as well, and she said it. She said it was great, but she has a European background as well. Well, that's quite fitting because this week's episode is. Um, linked by European royalty, I guess you could say, English and French, and also in light of the many um, issues in the current royal family of the UK, Matt and I thought we'd do a royal-themed one. Yeah, well, kind of um, the biggest influence was a kind of a half-commemoration to the death of Prince Philip. Although, That's right. Like, it, it does feel a bit strange to be saying that now, because when we were planning the episode, that was when all his commendations were coming in. Yeah. Uh, but uh, obviously, we only record a couple of weeks at a time, and then... Mm. Uh, one of us got sick, the other was on holidays, so it's kind of like um, uh, Vale Prince Philip, just slightly late. Yeah, yes, definitely Vale to Prince Philip. So we are discussing, I don't know technically if she is directly related to this monarch, but I, I, I don't think so because there was a lot of abdications and other people coming in from other houses and things like that. So we're discussing, the two films we're discussing tonight are both from the 1930s, The Private Life of Henry VIII, which is actually a British film, not a Hollywood film, and then uh, we had Marie Antoinette, 1938, which is a Hollywood production starring Norma, Sh Norma Shearer. So these were two interesting films, sort of enjoyable watches, uh, a bit of artistic license, we would say. Yeah, it's uh, because I'm such a historical fanatic, I kind of have to... Um often suppress a lot of my uh, historian's rage when I see historical films um, and be like, okay, okay, I respect the creative choice here, uh, but like with every other historical film, it's always kind of um, done with a bit of judgment of the politics of whoever's writing it, and you kind of always have to bear that in mind when uh, looking at a subject. Yeah, and um, so we'll start with The Private Life of Henry VIII. So it's a 1933 British film and directed by Alexander Corder, starring the great Charles Lawton. I've seen Charles Lawton and a few other things, so it was good to see him here. Robert Donat, Merle Oberon and Elsa Lancaster, who was Charles Lawton's wife. And she also was the bride of Frankenstein. I... The name sounded familiar, and I thought, hang on, she's actually the lady that played the Bride of Frankenstein. I'm not sure she'd have been thrilled with the title. <laughs> Maybe back then it had a different connotation, but now it's literally, she's the Bride of Frankenstein. So this film focuses on, you know, it's a look at the marriages of King Henry VIII, but it starts technically with Anne Boleyn, so his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, is, is sort of mentioned at the start, but not really focused on. Uh, and, it, and it was... Um, it was a major international success at the time and, and the director, Corder, Alexander Corder, was a leading filmmaker and then Charles Lawton really got into being a box office star, at least over there. So what were your thoughts on this one? 
I really enjoyed it, and it was kind of a guilty enjoyment because I, you, you do realize that we're talking about the uh, rather unfair execution of quite a few people going along the way, mm -hmm. and uh, but you have all this black humor going along, mm. uh, and even um, my favorite part was when he was with his um, what was it, his fourth wife, was it Anne of Cleves or the, the one um that um. He only saw by a picture first and uh, oh, was like... Uh, um, yes, yes, Anne of Cleves. Yeah, and like he was like... <laughs> they were playing cards on their yeah. wedding night. And it was like, he was like... He sort of like lost all these bets. And he was like, does anybody have any money? <laughs> like, uh, I haven't laughed that hard in a scene in a film for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I thought... Yeah, I, I understand that they... You know, from reading some of the historical narratives and then seeing some analysis of the film where they said, well, this didn't happen, that didn't happen, all the rest of it. Uh, but they, I think what they were trying to do is make people relate to Henry VIII. So they sort of cast some of the wives more in sort of villainous roles rather than, well, I guess, I don't know if he was the true villain. I mean, he was a very much a product of the time and a product of his upbringing. But as you said, a lot of the things that he did, like creating the Church of England and stuff and breaking away from Catholicism so he could marry Anne Boleyn, for example, were sort of kind of a waste of time because he didn't really ever get what he wanted anyway. Well, yeah, well, the fact that um, the whole um, breaking off from uh, Rome, because Henry VIII actually uh, would have... Uh, in any other situation, he'd have been the, on, on the opposite side. He was quite a conservative person, religious-wise, uh, but he uh, uh, sort of allowed these ideas from, um, I think it was to, uh, directly related to Martin Luther's ideas, um, uh, that he could uh, break off as, with the right as a secular ruler to give himself the justification mm -hmm. to um, uh, get a divorce without the Pope's permission. Uh, but the fact that, because at that time there was no historical or minimal historical precedent for a female ruler, mm -hmm. and so he was desperate to have a son, because I think at that time he'd only had the one daughter, Mary. Yes, and, that's right, with uh, his first wife, yeah. But, like, within a living uh, memory for many people, they still ended up with Elizabeth I on the throne, so it's kind of like, all, all that strife for absolutely nothing, and, like, it's easy to get caught up in the political um, turmoil and the uh, linkage to international conflicts, but also not forgetting that, like... And this is something that I think people take for granted if they're on regular churchgoers, especially in the way people approach religion now. But in very pious times, it would have been psychological torment for a mm -hmm. lot of citizens um, to suddenly be told they're excommunicated, re-communicated and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's... so. To make the film entertaining and, I guess, for the audience to go along with it, they've had to take a bit of artistic licence. So, for example, like, Anne Boleyn was betrayed as, like, a noble victim who behaves with dignity. and But they didn't actually, you know, go through why she was, you know, executed because that she was on a trumped-up charge of incest with her brother and... Uh, <laughs> half the reason I think is just because the reasons for the uh, for the execution were so stupid. Yeah, that's exactly right. Just to give him, you know, it was just a pretext to get rid of her. Um, and, you know, there's a few things like they kind of jump ahead a little bit with Jane Seymour comes in and he marries her on the same day and that didn't quite happen in the history. Uh, also, the whole thing with, you know, Anne of Cleves being in love with another man, I don't believe that was that was true at all because, you know, there was that little side relationship. There she always was has to be a side relationship. There always has to be a side relationship. So I think it was trying to make Henry seem a bit more, you know, 
I don't know, the, so the audience could relate to him and because obviously he's the central character of the piece, but he was really known as a tyrant. And I guess Charles Lawton's betrayal of him was the first time an audience would have seen him um, portrayed on the screen. And I think Charles Lawton did a pretty good job. I mean, he was a portly, you know, over-the-top sort of character. Yeah. Uh, Henry VIII actually wasn't apparently as big as he's often made out in portraits. Like, he'd wear the heavy padding mm -hmm. just so he could, um, because of the drafty castles he lived in. Yeah. Uh, like, eventually he did become quite large. I think they needed, um, pulleys to help yes. him to bed. Although, that, yeah. I think partially he had, like, what, uh, ulcers in the leg or something? Yeah, it, it just said that, um, he, it was saying here in the history book that I was reading that in the 1540s he became very corpulent, that's a great word, and very prematurely aged. And like you said, he had to be moved around, like I guess, I don't know if they had wheelchairs back then, but in that sort of pulley system where they had to, yeah, so it was kind of a sad, undignified ending for a great character. But I did enjoy um, Charles Lawton's portrayal. I thought he was pretty much perfect for the role, really. Yeah. It was kind of a sort of uh, musical, historical comedy type style, which uh, is very typical of the era. And, like, I enjoyed it greatly, although in this kind of Me Too age, it, it's mm -hmm. you can't imagine... A, like, you can sort of uh, sympathise with the storytelling of the time, but you can't imagine a film being made these days that would be treated so lightly, uh, someone who was so... Uh, dismissive of his spouses i know and really in, in and in both films as well it just was a period you know a part of the, that time in history that people were so disposable not only from natural illnesses like how many people lost young children to tuberculosis and all sorts of things but just he wanted to get rid of someone so a trumped up charge was made and they got their head cut off and it was just um, on to the next person and what's scary is that by uh, standards of rulers at the time, uh, Henry still had a like relatively held back um, political system um, compared to the likes of France and places. Uh, like he didn't have absolute uh, rule of purse strings, which was often a big thing. Yeah, that's right. Although when he did create the Church of England, did that mean that a lot of the property of those Catholic sort of churches reverted to him? I think I was reading that somewhere that that increased he, his wealth. He managed to take on a considerable wealth, although apparently like because he was a massive into increasing military expenditure because he wanted to be like the he had he was within um just out of living memory of the great military victories in the Hundred Years' War against France. Like, he wanted to really follow in those glories, and, like, war was expensive, and mm -hmm. so he wanted to take in all that cash uh, to help. But he And so he was consequently constantly on financial ruin. Yeah. Like, he's known for um, uh, playing a great part in um, expanding the English Navy. Yes, that's true, yeah. And I guess, well, his original first marriage to Catherine of Aragon, that was, well, she was part of the Spanish royal family. Yes. So that was sort of to solidify that. And then Anne of Cleves was part of the German, the German fam a German royal family of the Cleves. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people got married back then, as we'll see in the next sort of story about that other monarch in France. People married for everything but love sort of thing, you know if you did love the person it was an optional extra it was yeah i mean if you did actually manage to fall in love with the person then but i believe it was maybe his... people still get married for money and stuff yeah that, that's very true um yeah i look i like the film and i think it was really because i like charles lawton so much i really now what's charles lawton is it hunchback of notre dame is that one of his other films that he's well well known for maybe um 
it was a real guilty pleasure film for me because I was enjoying the humour and the frivolity they were making of such a what was really quite a tragic historic period. Yeah, it, it really was. And the way he went through those wives as well. And then, I mean, he still ended up kind of alone, really, at the end, even though he was married to his last wife. She sort of was able to sort of stay with him for that period of time. But as I was saying, joking to Matt before we started recording, what planet have I been living on? I just barely realised that uh, Elizabeth I was his... Um, daughter and the third monarch of his line to get to the throne well yeah i think he had um he had three legitimate children i think he had at least one illegitimate son and i think he i think he like um yes uh, to be illegitimate was awkward but if you were from a rich and powerful enough parent it didn't necessarily mean you were without discomfort but yeah like uh, of his legitimate uh, stock you had mary that went on to become bloody mary Mm -hmm. uh his his son, who um like died by fourteen, he spent a fairly short time on the throne. Yeah, and Edward then, uh, the uh, Edward the sixth. Yeah, Edward yeah, the that's sixth. right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Elizabeth the first. Uh, so um, she carried on his uh, Protestant legacy, as it were. Although um Henry was like like more Anglo-Catholic, Elizabeth was more towards the pure Protestant line. I think. Right. Um, and she was known as the Virgin Queen and had an aversion not, to marriage. Not and... literally. <laughs> That's how she portrayed herself. Um, but I suppose her aversion to marriage would have been the fact that her mum, Anne Boleyn, got her head cut off. So maybe that had something to do with it. Possibly. <laughs> um, I liked Elsa Lancaster in this film. Uh, and I like the fact that they were married and worked together, her and Charles Lawton, all through their life, which I found really interesting. Uh, and originally, Alexander Corder, the director who had a Hungarian background and had moved over to the UK. We have a lot of um, European directors going over to either the UK or um, changing their name a little bit and then getting on with their Going over careers. from Europe in the 1930s. What could have influenced them? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but he was actually looking for a suitable film project for Charles and for Elsa to star in together. And apparently he overheard a cabbie singing the music hall song, I'm Henry VIII, I am. Do you know how that goes? I'm Henry VIII, I am. If you ever watched the film Ghost, Patrick Swayze's character sings it and that, that's how I know it. And that led to a discussion and it went on from there and then they just kind of developed the script. And originally it was supposed to be about Henry VIII and Anne of Cleves only, which I think still would, I think a movie could still definitely be made about that. You can tell that that was the part the script writers gave their most heart to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that definitely for sure, sort of uh, more of the comical elements as well. Um, and I was wondering why Catherine of Aragon was only sort of briefly mentioned. They said because she was a respectable lady and this and that, and he had a you know, I guess compared to some of the otherwise, he had a relatively decent breakup with her. But having said that, um, I think they just weren't interested in writing for her character, so they just decided not to. They probably also ran out of film. Yeah, that's <laughs> with that's, that many wives. Yeah, and look, um, they've—it's the private lives of Henry VIII, so they weren't really concentrating too much on the break from Rome with the Catholicism and Church of England. Um, and they just really focused on his private life, which I think was right for this film. Yeah, like the, and I think it was a nice historical detail with the, her execution, because I think it was that they actually had to bring in a special executioner who was an expert with a sword for her execution. Oh, okay. Is that just because um, 
it might have been special treatment, um, but like um, uh, there was all sorts of um, ranking effect um, across Europe when you were look at executions. Like I believe, well, when they did um, the French Revolution, they introduced the guillotine because it was meant to be quite symbolic of the equality of capital punishment. It wasn't no, just execution by acts for nobles and hanging for commoners. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so, like, if you were well-born enough, you uh, they would import a special sword executioner for you. That's, as I recall, <laughs> I'm a bit behind on my Wikipedia reading. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that's a nice segue into our next film, which we will be discussing, which is Marie... We're taking... Going across the English Channel and going over to France for this one. So, France via Hollywood, I guess you could say. Uh, Marie Antoinette, 1938, and it's an American historical drama film produced by MGM. And it was directed by W.S. Van Dyke, starring the beautiful Norma Shearer as Marie Antoinette. Uh, it was based upon a 1932 biography that was written by Stefan Zweig. Uh, and it was also the last film of a producer, Irving Thalberg, who was actually Norma Shearer's husband. So that was the last project he worked on before he died. So, yeah, this film takes a look at a sketches, I suppose, um, a series of scenes out of Marie Antoinette's life, who was the very famous or infamous wife of Louis the Sixteenth. Yeah, and it's kind of like the polar opposite of uh, the previous uh, film because in Henry the Eighth we saw all the excesses of royal authority being taken to extravagant um, uh, extremes, whereas Marie Antoinette had all the extremities of circumstance done against her. Because, mm -hmm. like, in many ways, she like she's always been portrayed as a uh, frivolous spendthrift, um, but uh, in many ways I kind of see her as a victim, because, like, for most of her life, yes, of course, uh, what else was she going to do except um, spend a lot on gambling? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't really know, you know, when you think of Marie Antoinette, you think of the high hair pieces and the opulent gowns and things. Also... You think of the French Revolution. They were the last monarchs, you know, basically before the revolution took over. And also her famous line of let him eat cake, which I believe she didn't actually say anyway. It was just no. always attributed to her. Like apparently that was like a, a term that had been even coined like decades before she was born. It's just like a, a, one of those various uh, bits of uh, Victorian age storytelling that's appeared. Yeah. Um, now... We have a, a wonderful cast in this film. Obviously, Nora Shearer, Tyrone Power, John Barrymore playing King Louis XV. And then Robert Morley, who I loved playing Louis XVI. I don't know if Louis XVI was that camp and over the top, but, you know. He was, um, he certainly wasn't James Bond. He was, no. um, uh, <laughs> like, it. He was quite a keen hunter, so I don't think he could have been quite as, um, like, he was a big eater and a keen hunter, so I think he would have been kind of like a gridiron player, sort of, um, uh, like, heavy set at times, but uh, still uh, quite uh, able to hold himself physically, so probably not quite as uh, clumsy as uh, he was portrayed. Yes, and unfortunately they, um, you know, the reality of Marie and her husband, Louis, who... Well, they sort of made the best of a bad situation. Again, it was an arranged sort of political marriage. Marie was originally from Austria, the Austrian royal family. Was that the Habsburg family? Yes. I was watching a film, um, a 
mini documentary thing on genetics and why it's not good to marry people in your own family, obviously for genetic reasons. And her family was a family that basically put themselves into instinction, uh, like went extinct because of all of their intermarrying and everyone got sick. And <laughs> well, it's believed partially um, the haemophilia that ran within um, uh, Queen Victoria and passed on to the Tsar's son might have been partially because of... Um, like too much, like even like just distant cousins and stuff. Like yeah. uh, because like when you're talking over decades and centuries, like a small a gene pool does um shrink a bit. Yeah, um, all of her family had a particular type of um chin or jaw or, but they were this geneticist was sort of saying that yeah there was just too many inherited illnesses and while there are obviously people who are still related to them alive today a lot of immediate members of that family died from all sorts of ailments, but it was because they were all too closely related. And a lot of people, you know, I was speaking to someone um, from a, an ethnic background and they marry a lot within their family and they see that as maintaining the strength of the family, but in a way it doesn't at all. It... That's kind of a logic they had in ancient Egypt where quite often not just like distant cousins, but like siblings they'd be marrying off to each other. Yeah, well, you know, I was even looking at like some historical data on Tutankhamen, not to not to stray too far away, but he Just a couple thousand years uh, <laughs> <in there. laughs> But he apparently had like a cleft palate and a club foot and you know, when you see his golden mask and everything, you, you don't you know that he's young, but you don't see him as being this sort of disfigured sort of person, but he was you know, everyone was interrelated to each other and that was the sort of the earliest evidence of how detrimental it is to marry so closely and create children within your family. Yeah, well, it is like one of those constant debates within uh, looking at his um, treasures and remains. Uh, like, not sure if he uh, had a um, uh, as much of a club foot that he didn't need a cane because he actually was buried with a lot of decorative canes. Yeah, so that's, you know, that actually kind of makes sense. So, so Marie herself has come from this family and she was married to... What were they going for in this film? It sort of seemed like Louis the Sixteenth was he, he wasn't able to function as a husband, sort of thing, or. So he, um, Louis the Sixteenth, apparently, um, it's believed had a condition where um, it, it was sort. Of, I don't know if it was like a, if it would have been something like a foreskin that was too tight or something, but like it was not comfortable for him to be aroused. Right. Okay. Um. I don't know, um, and like it took a few years, like that. that's one belief, like we kind of have a bit of uncertainty because it's obviously something that would have been kept in quite private circles. Yeah. Uh, add to that, that we are talking, to be fair to them, they were like 14 and 16. I'd be actually interested to see um, a film that, because quite often films depict uh, these two in like uh, at best in That's their right. early 20s and like yeah. I'd actually like to see a film where you actually like have a 14 and 16 year old and uh, people would sympathize like god I'd be awkward in that situation yeah. <laughs> too <laughs> yes that's uh, that's actually right i suppose at that time it's something perhaps you could do now, even if the actors were slightly older, but still older teenagers, they could play a 14 and 16 year old. But I guess at the time, it, uh, yeah, let's just make them in their early 20s. That'll, that'll do. I Look, Robert Morley is, I saw him straight away and I thought, is he an interesting casting choice or do I not know enough about Louis Sixteenth and he's right up that alley? Or what did you think of him as a casting choice in this film? Like, It was... um. Uh, th 
it kind of matched more the stereotypical storytelling that had built up of Louis the Sixteenth in like yeah. the whole Victorian <laughs> period, because quite often when we're dealing with uh, people of that far back, uh, very often you have a generation of uh, myth making that evolves on top of them, and. And, like, he was actually uh, quite an intelligent individual. Like, mm. he liked to play with um, locks and everything. And um, uh, kind of uh, in virtue to him, he was apparently one of the first... Uh, he was, like, the first French king in 200 years to not have an official mistress. Oh, what? yeah, he, d- he did seem sort of well-meaning, I suppose yeah. you could say. Um... He, he was a very pious person as well. And it's actually interesting if you look into the French history because, yeah. like... Um, in some ways, he um, had um, sealed a bit of fate for himself early on uh, because he, a big problem constantly for the French crown was that their tax collection system was so inefficient uh, that um, like you only got a fraction of it actually reached the palace. And uh, that meant that uh, often a lot of poor people were taxed rather unfairly because the wealthy could get themselves out of um, full responsibility. And his predecessor, his grandfather, had spent a lot of his time working through the courts to sort of get it on the way to a more efficient system. And uh, Louis the Sixteenth, trying to sort of be popular, mm-hmm. gave a lot of the powers back. Right. That's yeah. uh, and there was all the, this complication with the gold standard to the banking and stuff. But that's for a lot of very thick chapters of histories <laughs> on the French Revolution, which we couldn't fit in here. Right. Uh, but um. He was uh, very much more intelligent than he was portrayed. Yes, he was by all means awkward. He wasn't exactly a charmer on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, was probably a bit um, indifferent to his uh, his wife. It was apparently when um, that diamond necklace affair yes. that was featured in the film made they become a bit closer. Yes. What I did find about this film is like it was obviously that whoever the, those writing it were familiar with a lot of the French Revolution uh, story... And like someone like me who knows a fair bit of it could follow up with each of the little events they were referring to. Mm-hmm. But I think to someone who was uninitiated with that part of history, they'd have gotten very confused watching it. Yeah, I would probably recommend to everybody at least read a little of something of uh, Henry VIII and Marie Antoinette slash Louis Sixteenth, just so when things crop up in the film, again, a lot of artistic license used in both films, but the major sort of events, especially towards the end of their lives, and obviously Marie Antoinette, they, you know, not to spoil the ending, but they die. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just good to have an understanding of the backdrop, especially with the French Revolution, what was their role in it. Uh, and it gives you an idea, you know, these people, you know, you see portraits of them and the portly, you know, uh, King Henry VIII and Marie Antoinette, but, you know, with the the coiffed hair and the large gowns and let them eat cake and all that sort of stuff and Palace of Versailles and, you know, but they were actually real people that interacted with the population. They were either, either loved or hated by sections of society. They had a lot of, you know, machinations around them with their advisors and, you know, like Madame Dubarry, for example, who mm-hmm. was his father's mistress and he tried to get rid of her. This is Louis, this is in Marie Antoinette and she was often regarded as the most hated woman in France at one point. Uh, Marie Antoinette, she always had it worked against her that uh, she was Austrian and quite often um, anti-foreign sentiments would, would tie into issues with her. Yeah, definitely. So two films really interesting if you're a historical buff 
or even if you're just sort of getting yourself into it or you want to learn more, two great interesting films to watch. Norma Shearer, who we haven't really spoken a lot about, who was absolutely stunning and beautiful. She is a Canadian-American actress um, and she sort of was born in Montreal and then made her way down to, uh, to Hollywood and she was married to the producer of the film, Irving Thalberg, and he unfortunately died, but she did have children with him. Um, and she was just looking through some of the catalogue of her career. She was such a great choice to play this role. I, did you like her in this film or there's somebody else you thought might have been, you know, from the time who would have been better or? I, I did enjoy her performance. There was something unique about it that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Uh, I, it was very, um, you sort of needed to have... In many in many ways, like you sort of sympathize sympathize with her portrayal as someone who you could sort of understand her because like Marie Antoinette was sort of out of touch with reality in that she was such a spendthrift, but that can apply to anybody of privilege, uh, and that's even now like uh, all the reasons that people hated her, you could apply to the Kardashians now. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So yeah, but she did manage to create a good sympathetic portrayal. Yeah, she did. And she was really known. She was an Academy Award winner for a film I haven't seen yet, The Divorcee, uh, in 1930. That was in the pre-code era. And her, so she was around, you know, Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, Jean Harlow. She was one of MGM's top actresses uh, at that time in the 1930s. But when the production code came in, and we've mentioned this before, this is when they sort of codified what could be seen on film, what couldn't, to sort of a lot more stricter standards. Um, she couldn't do some of the more racy, fun stuff that she was doing and moved into more more period dramas. And uh, Apparently that, she'd also like yeah. um, made a couple of critical choices on film, um, which uh, they ended up not being larger hits and I think they'll probably uh, uh, put her off um, doing work for much longer. Yeah, so she... Yeah, so the production code, yeah, 1934 and then from pretty much from there on, that I mean, Marie Antoinette was made in 38. Uh, but she, you know, she was a very celebrated actress and she really up there in the top echelon of classic Hollywood actresses. Mm. Yeah, like she didn't uh, produce as many as some, which is probably why she's not... Probably as well known as the likes of Ingrid Bergman and stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think after her husband, after Mr. Thalberg died, she um, didn't sort of just quit straight away, but she sort of went off and looked after her children. But she was involved with James Stewart and then she, and also George Raft as well. So she had a few sort of scandalous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she had a, she had a, and she did retire in 1942. So she did require quite young compared to some other people like my beloved Ray, who acted, Ray Milland, who acted all through his life. Yeah, the reality though probably was that for uh, women performers, there was uh, probably a more of a time limit imposed on them, at, uh, but certainly um, it sounds like she was going by a definite choice. Yeah, in 1960, her secretary stated, Miss Shearer does not want any publicity. She doesn't talk to anyone, but I can tell you that she has refused many requests to appear in motion pictures and TV shows. I always wonder about some of these uh, actors and other prominent people that may not have been active for 
years or decades, and yet suddenly they uh, have a, when they might die or something, and they have a spokesman or an agent or a PR, and I'm like, they still hire someone to, to do that <laughs> stuff? I mean, um, do they get that much um, correspondence that they yeah. need to hire someone? Yeah. I mean, she did sort of live to a ripe old age, and let's see, when mm. she passed away was 1983, yeah. so she definitely saw a heck of a lot of the of that century. Yeah, definitely. Even Olivia de Havilland, I think she had a, mm. a PR per person that like announced her death or something. But I'm like, could she have really had enough going on to keep somebody that busy? I mean, yes, yeah, she went to the Oscars like five or something years before and another public event. But I'm like, uh, uh, could someone have had that many letters to type in relation to it? Yeah, it's it's actually funny. You know, you see people like Kim Novak and stuff around. Mm. And you think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure people still contact them a lot, but... They must have other business interests or something, and hence the reason they have an office. But, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. It'd be interesting to sort of see what goes on behind the scenes. But those were our two films for this week, and I liked I liked both of them. But really good to go in with some basic knowledge of Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth and King Henry VIII and his six wives, I would say. Yeah, it's um, quite a... F- it's... Considering um, the type of person that... Um, Enforced to do this episode, which was um, Prince Philip, who's sort of always been known for a very austere, no-nonsense type. Uh, these were kind of the two other polar opposites of uh, what it is to be royalty, because even though Philip wasn't born into it, he... Well, he was born into mm. it, but he was he c- could have basically lived a fairly normal middle-class life if he hadn't married Elizabeth. Yep. Um, well, he was the right choice for her. I mean, they stuck together all those years, and she was obviously from yeah. a much different era where she wouldn't have got divorced anyway. Yeah. But So, like, yes, uh, we uh, went for the royal theme out of um, influence of um, uh, his recent passing, but uh, these were quite too... Um, th- these kind of show the various extremes of personality they go into their kind of life. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that that's, the, that's it for this week. Uh, for our next exciting episode of When Movies Were Good, we're going with more a ghostly tone. Not that Rex Harrison is a ghost, of course, but, you know, we're going to be doing uh, two Rex Harrison films. Matt suggested this and I thought it would be fun. We're doing Blythe Spirit, which is one of Noel Coward's plays, 1945, and then The Ghost of Mrs Muir, which has had several different incarnations after this 1947 film, which he made with Gene Tierney. So yeah. I think that'll be good. Yeah, like, well, Rex Harrison certainly thought he was a king or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I, I was fascinated with his work uh, for years because I loved him in My Fair Lady. Yeah. Uh, I did find out years afterwards, though, that he was apparently a real jerk in real life. Yeah, yeah. You, I remember Matt and I were in the cinema once and some actor who it's not important who it was, he came on and Matt said, oh... Would you go and see that film? I said, no, I don't like that actor. He's a real pain in the butt and he's rude and everything. And then you said, yeah, have you seen The Ghost of Mrs. Muir? And I said, oh, yeah, um, yeah, I have, or I've seen parts of it. And you said, well, Rex Harrison was a real pain in the ass. <laughs> Although we always found out with these people many years after that they were, but now because of social media, you find out in real time. Exactly. Like, uh, you had to be on your guard a lot more. Like, he was... An absolutely excellent actor, and that is why we are doing. That is why we are doing that episode. Uh, 
But yes, uh, we're not uh, saying anything other than he, he was an actual real jerk-off in, in, in his personal <laughs> life. But we'll get more into detail in that in the episode. We will. And that wraps it all up. So as uh, Matt always tells you at the end of the uh, episode, you can find us on... Any social media platform you like. Yeah. Including pre- Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> and in the meantime, I'm Rachel... I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and good night.